Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed Local Provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor. Security sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIP. Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house and giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner and an investment advisor with over 20 years' experience in providing financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis. I have a, a, an MBA in finance. I'm also a Dave Ramsey local provider and have been helping corporations and individuals with planning for over 20 years. We're excited to have you listen to us today on our weekly radio show. We are right here every Saturday like today from 9 to 10 a.m. Yeah, you can also go to our website, moneymd.net. We have a link in the top right-hand corner that you can stream us. Also go to the dial at 1230 a.m. And uh, we also have podcasts. We have a link on our website. Uh, that you can click and you can listen to um, any show or a segment of the show. Um, you can go back and look probably six months worth of uh, podcasts. So we try to make it easy for you. Yeah, no excuse not to listen to the Money Doctors this morning or any morning for that matter. That's a great way to listen on a podcast. And do check us on our website, moneymd.net, where you can link to us there. You can send us your questions um, straight to us or you can email us directly at info at moneymd.net. Well, John, I think we have a great show lined up for the day. Um, you know, just just a blevy of information here that we are passing out get, free of charge. Get your notepad. All our listeners here. And, you know, we're going to start off. One of the things we're going to start off with is the five ways to wipe out debt. Mm, this is good. This is really good. Very, very important. You know, lots of people out there carrying a load of debt. And they don't really know how to tackle it. You know, it's just one of these things that just encompasses you and you can't figure out how to get out of it. Well, we got the five solutions here, the five ways to, to start getting a handle on your debt situation. Yeah, and I think Dave Ramsey would like that that sector getting out of debt. He's a big no-debt guy. Um, then we're going to follow that up with um, an article about money and marriage, five tips for newlyweds. And, Steve, we see... Um, you know, the divorce rate is high, and one of the main reasons is money. And so if it's something that you don't address on the front end, it will come back and cause issues later on. So these are five tips that we're going to go through. And you want to make make sure you stick around because it's actually not just for newlyweds. It certainly helps them get a good good uh, foothold on their relationship. But it can be used for everybody. So um, that will yeah. be a good segment. And then we're going to close out the show with um, – Looking back at history a little bit, and, you know, 9-11, gosh, that was uh, many years ago, and um, it really impacted the stock market. But I think you'll be surprised at at the reaction that the stock market had. And we'll go through some of the details and kind of relive that uh, traumatic um, event that we had for our nation. So stick around for that as well. Yeah, people forget how, how stock markets react <clears throat> in times like that and how they recover. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we're going to talk about that because that is a very, very important thing to – to remember, uh, remember history and your, and keep that in mind for the future. 
Okay, but we're going to start off here with the financial fact of the week. Yeah, this comes from the Economic Policy Institute. And, um, you know, Steve, when we sit down and we do, um, we have a discovery interview process that we talk with folks on and with our clients and go through the planning. And some of them are very fortunate to have pensions, but it is a dying benefit. And and so the financial fact is only 29% of American seniors, those are folks at least age 65, are receiving a monthly pension as a result of their working career, either in, a, either in public uh, or the private sector prior to retirement. Now, that does not include Social Security. So uh, about a third of Americans do have a pension. It used to be one of the, you know, one of the benefits it's, it's that were going, provided. It's going down. You know, it's oh, a smaller no percentage than it used to be by far. And, and the people we sit down with that are planning for retirement that are maybe 50, 55 Boy, there's a now a lot smaller percentage of those yeah, that most, have a pension. That's right. I think even at it, like the uh, the site, there you know, folks that are starting now don't get pensions. They don't. Even yeah. you know, people that started ten years ago, mm-hmm. a lot of them do not have pensions. That's so, right. So uh, it's a big deal. You're gonna. It's a it's a new world when it comes to planning for retirement. So you have to take the onus. It's on you to to go out and plan and save because it means you got to put a lot more in your four one k. That's right. So. Good, good, great uh, financial fact of the week. Okay, that leads us into our first topic, and that is debt, the five ways to wipe out debt. John, you know um, how it is with quicksand. You see that on TV shows, particularly the old-timey mm-hmm. shows that would show people in quicksand and how any movement would take you deeper and deeper in the quicksand. Well, that's kind of how it is with debt. That's how it feels with debt. It can feel almost impossible to get out on your own or to make any progress for that matter. Anything you do, it seems to sink you deeper and deeper into debt. Fortunately, though, that's that that really is not true for most people. Um, you can make progress and escape if you follow some of the tried and true principles that are out there for getting out of debt. Of course, first and foremost is to fix the problem that got you into debt in the first place. That usually means budgeting, cutting spending, um, you have to change your lifestyle dramatically, if necessary, to right the ship and to avoid the coastal Concordia-type disaster that you can have with your finances. And obviously, you have to free up some money to make payments beyond the minimum and to not overspend again. So you have to make some serious changes. But after that, there are some things that you can do to accelerate the process for paying down debt. So that's what we're going to focus on here today. Um, and I've seen people with a mountain of debt, but once they changed their attitude and they started paying it off, it started snowballing. And so that's the goal was to get the smo- snowball moving downhill. And before you know it, you'll be wiping out debt. And that's what we're going to talk about here. So, you know, don't we wish that our government would learn some of these concepts? Yes, too? they definitely need to. <laughs> they need to for sure. So the first one here, though, is to pay more than the minimum and start snowballing your debt payments. Um, this is a tried and true principle. Uh, Dave Ramsey talks about it too when it comes to wiping out debt. You know, you paying more than a minimum may seem obvious to to a few of us, but the vast majority they only scrape up enough to make that bare minimum payment every month. So what people don't consider is that the longer you drag out repaying the loan, the more interest you're going to end up paying over time. So you start digging yourself deeper and deeper into debt simply by not getting ahead of it. Um, There's not only the interest of payment, but you also have to consider that the income that money could be earning as well 
if you were mm-hmm. getting out of debt. Yeah, that's right. And even if you don't feel like you have the money to pay over the minimum, you got to figure out a way to do it. So you got to look at where cuts uh, can be made. I mean, instead of eating out uh, at lunch, take a bag lunch. Um, you know, instead of going to the movies, rent from uh, Netflix or Redbox. Buy store brands instead of name brands. Maybe also you get a part-time job, work some overtime. So you got to figure out how to pay over that minimum to get that snowball started. That's exactly right. So you start with the smallest debt first, right? And you pay over the minimum. And once you get that loan paid off, you continue to budget the same loan payment and you direct it all to another loan, to the next biggest size loan. And you start that snowballing tactic. And that allows your payments to proportionately increase relative to the loan size, killing it even faster. So making the extra sacrifice to pay off your debt quickly can save you hundreds, if not thousands of dollars in interest. And believe me, the relief of being debt-free and the savings will make it well worth the sacrifice it takes over time. Yeah, those sacrifices aren't forever, right? It's for a window of time until you get through this. Exactly. So that's the first one. Pay more than the minimum to start that snowballing of your debt payments. The second one here is to sell something big. Okay, I mean, you have to start getting ahead of the payments. So sometimes the best way to do that is to pay off a nice chunk all at once. Maybe you have a boat, camper, car that you're not making good use of. Put it on the auction block and slap those proceeds on one or two of your debts. Pick the ones that you can pay off completely with the proceeds. Generate some positive momentum. And that can be a huge psychological boost to get you motivated and on track for paying off your debts. So sell something big. Find Mm -hmm. something you don't need. Sell furniture. Yeah, eBay. Just eBay. Something. You know, have a garage sale. Start getting something going toward those debts to make a big chunk and, and get some momentum going. As Dave Ramsey says, sell, sell so much stuff that the kids think they're, think they're next. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there you go. start to get scared. Yeah, that's a good one. That's right. Third one here on the list is to cash out your savings account. Now, this may sound obvious, but some people, they want to hang on to a large chunk of cash sitting in their savings account. Yes, you still want to have a small emergency fund, but don't have a huge chunk of cash sitting there when you have this debt out here that you're trying to deal with. And this may seem scary for some, cashing out your hard fault savings, but think of it for a second. Even if your debt is only at 12%, your savings would have to pay over 18% before taxes even to break even with that cost. Of course, today you're lucky if you're getting a half percent on your savings. So, you know, this move is effectually earning you 16, 17, 18% risk free. And that's assuming you're only paying 12% interest. You know, the higher your rate, the more attractive this option becomes. Yeah, that's right. Um, Despite pulling, you know, from your savings, um, you know, and it feels like negative progress, it actually may be the best uh, process and, uh, you know, best way to, to go forward. You really need to consider all your options because all factors considered, the best solution may surprise you. So, you know, taking some money out, I I see this frequently, you know, you have cash sitting on the side and you have a 20%, you know, credit card, you know, when you're not, tw- you know, paying 20%, it's like you're making 20%. So uh, that's a great one there. Yeah, it seems obvious, but it's crazy to have that big chunk of cash sitting out there somewhere 
or to have something you could sell yeah, right. to, to pay it off. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you want to sell something big, you know, cash out your savings, get more than the minimum, get some momentum going. So we'll continue the discussion when we come back from the break. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net or give us a call at Richard Young Associates, 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD. We'll be right back after these messages. Stay with us. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey local provider. And we are going to continue our discussion here before the break about the five ways to wipe out debt. Mm Mm-hmm. Totally wipe it out. Get it behind you once and for all. Be done with it. You got to be focused. It does. It's you, not. It's not easy. It's not. It's, it takes some sacrifice. But you know, once you get it behind you, and if you, you change your attitude, change your lifestyle, it will be so liberating, so free, freeing that you know it'll change your life. It'll change your outlook on life. It will. You'll be a happier person. And the good news is it can be done. It can. It is not hopeless. It's not like quicksand like we talked about at the beginning here where you're just trapped and every move gets you deeper and deeper. You really can make some progress, but you're going to have to think outside the box. You're going to have to get a little more aggressive about it. You know, the first one we talked about was paying more than the minimum to start the snowball kind of moving downhill, right, to really get the smallest debt paid off and get some momentum but the second thing we talked about, which kind of goes with that, is selling something big. It's finding something you can sell to get rid of, to, to take a chunk out of the debt. Mm-hmm. And most people have something. You got something you don't need, you know. Um, just look around the house. Look around the house. Have a garage sale. You'd be amazed how much you can make, you mm-hmm. know, if you just, just get all your junk and just put it out there. I had a, a, a lady I was counseling one time, and she uh, she was divorced, and she had her wedding ring that she said she had no emotional attachment to, and so she actually sold wow. that and got a couple thousand dollars and put that as, you know, a start to the debt snowball. That's a great start. Yeah. Most people have an extra car, or they have a boat, or a camper, or maybe they have some antiques, you know, something they're just not really attached to that they can get rid of that would generate some significant money or like i said have a garage sale you know you can get you can make a thousand bucks off a garage sale if you have good stuff you know Mm -hmm. to sell so you know or or just start doing the ebay thing i mean start selling some stuff ridding yourself of that stuff and the debt and you can kill two birds with one stone so that was number two and the next one here was the cash out your savings account we talked about that if you have a big chunk of money and some people like to have this huge cushion out there somewhere they're attached to of money you need to put that against your debt and just keep a small emergency fund maybe a thousand or two you know for emergencies while you're while you're tackling this huge debt problem so that was number three the next one here though is to borrow against your life insurance or your 401k plan now, you know, this isn't the the first choice no, to borrow yeah. money, to pay off more money, but sometimes that gets the momentum going. It gets it consolidated and, and can get you going in the right direction. Plus, it's a forced way to make you pay it off because when you borrow money out of a 401k plan particularly, you have to pay it off over, over five years. 
So, you know, there are a couple options out here um, for you. If your life insurance has cash value, you can typically borrow against it at a lower interest rate than the commercial rate. And, yes, you're essentially borrowing your own money, but that doesn't mean that you don't have to repay it. You do want to repay it over time. Yeah, you definitely definitely should do that. I mean, it does give you a buffer, um, gives you time to repay it, but you don't want to clock out before then. If you do, the loan plus the interest will be taken out of the policy payable, um, and those that you purchased, you know, the insurance for would have to pay that back. So, you know, again, you have to use these as, a, I would say, a last last resort, um, and the 401k is another option, um, but it should be a last, last ditch. Yeah, you may not even need the life insurance policy. Maybe you can cash out a life insurance policy if you don't need it, and there might be some money there, mm-hmm. and you can get that chunk going against the debt. Um, so... You know, the other option is to borrow from your 401k plan. The best part of that is that you're paying yourself back the interest. The interest is not going somewhere else. It's going back into your 401k plan. And you typically have to pay it back over five years. So you can generally borrow the lesser 50% of your or, or half of your balance, whichever is less. And the interest is one or two points above prime. But beware, I mean, there are some drawbacks to this option. If you lose your job or leave your job before it's paid back, it's either all payable to be repaid immediately or it's a taxable distribution plus penalty um, after the distribution. So you want to make sure that you're you're not you know going to lose your job within five years and something may derail your repayment plan for that. Also, your payments are after-tax dollars, but you'll be taxed again when you draw the money back out of your 401k later. But having said that, the loan was Mm tax-free, so you are repaying it with after-tax dollars. Next one here on the list is get a home equity loan. Again, we're not a big proponent of just shuffling loans around, but you know, if you have equity built up in your home, perhaps this is the route you should consider taking because the interest rates on the loan are probably going to be a much lower than your current uh, credit card payments or what other loans, what other debts that you have, which will amount to a big savings. Also, you can get a tax deduction for your home interest, home equity loan interest. Um, so you're replacing a higher interest loan with a lower tax-free loan. So that's another option. And then last one here on the list is attempt to renegotiate the terms with your creditors, <clears throat> particularly if you've gotten behind on the payments. Okay, so if your back's against the wall and the loan sharks are chasing after you, what do you do? Um, some of them, people just give up, and they don't know what to do. Uh, but don't go down that easy. What you need to try to do is try to reason with them, get them to let up on you a bit. Most of them will help you. Show them the logic in that if they're to take you to bankruptcy, they're not going to get anything from you. It would just be better for both of you if they eased up on the loan terms so that you'd be able to pay them back at least some. In order for that to happen, you have to be honest with them. You have to call them up, let them know really where you're at, and typically they will negotiate with you. Yeah, that's right. Just just let them know what the reality is, that they may not get anything back. I mean, if you have no other money um, and they're going to get zero or they can work with you, uh, most of the time they'll jump through hoops to see at least some of that money. So um, sometimes it takes several conversations and phone calls to make that happen, but um, it, it does work. That's right. For sure, they'll go a long way to avoid the prospect of bankruptcy uh, with the debt that they have, with the debt you have with them. 
keep in mind that this is a last-ditch effort, though. It's not something you want to be used unless your situation really is dire because it probably will ruin your credit history, your credit rating, if you have to negotiate and and, and get a uh, uh, reduced payment on your, your loans. Um, having said that, said that is certainly a viable way to get creditors to ease up on those payments and the rates. But the takeaways here are, even though your debt situation may seem helpless, there usually are some steps you can take to begin the process to escape, and it will quickly snowball once you start getting ahead. And after you get your budget in order, you should tell uh, sell something, clean out any savings account that you have, wipe out a chunk of the debt to get some momentum going. Uh, you can borrow against your life insurance policies, take out a loan against your 401k. You should also try to negotiate with the credit card companies. Oftentimes, they'll drop the interest rate if you start making payments, or they'll settle for 50 or 60% of the balance in some cases if you're behind. So the point is, don't give up. There are ways to get back on the right track, but give us a call if we can help with that. You can call us anytime, 706-739-0725. Okay, and that leads us up here to our question of the week. Yeah, this has to actually has to do with um, with debt as well. It's uh, so the question is, we run across this periodically. I'm upside down in my car. Um, I can't afford the payment. What should I do? And so the example here, and this is a recent example, is they owe about twenty thousand dollars, and it's only worth about seventeen thousand dollars. That payment on that was about four hundred and fifty dollars a month. And that person was drowning in in debt. They had some credit card debt, and mm. you know. And so the conversation is: is you need to sell the car. Well, if you only get seventeen for it, and you owe twenty, how does that work? I've listened to Dave talk about yeah, this a lot. It's not great. It's not. You're basically going to have to go out and get a loan for that three thousand, and then probably get another two thousand dollar loan. So five total, and that extra two thousand would go to buy an inexpensive vehicle. Right. And that $5,000 payment is going to be about $100 versus four fifty. So you're still going to have some payment, but you're going to be able to get through your, your debt you know, quicker by instead of four fifty going out, you only now have 100 going out. So car's not as nice, but you'll get through that process much, much quicker. Yeah, exactly. You'll save several hundred dollars there in payments and, uh, and free up that money that can go toward other debts. Mm-hmm. So that's a very, very important thing to do. And you know, the flip side is you don't want to get in this situation in the first place. Yeah. So buy a used car that you can pay cash for. I am a big proponent of paying cash for vehicles. You know, if you want a new vehicle, that's fine. If you have the money, you can go pay cash for a new vehicle. Mm-hmm. I am all for it. But if you have to finance the vehicle, don't buy a new And once vehicle. you pay cash for it, you can then take that payment that you would have had, put it into a savings account so you have the cash built up, exactly. you know, and in another 10 years when you need it. You'll have, you know, twenty or $30,000 that you can go pay cash for another car, and you just continue that process. Exactly. You get ahead of it one time by putting the money aside ahead of time, making the car payment to yourself, build it up into a savings account. Then you just go pay cash for a car, and you continue that payment into your car account, Mm -hmm. and you keep letting that car account build up for your next car. But pay cash for cars. Don't get behind by – don't get sucked into the the credit trap. It's a very, very common – you know, oh, for sure. issue for most people out there. So it certainly is. Okay, that leads up to our break here. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net or give us a call at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD. We'll be right back after these messages. And GNN News. Stay 
Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey local provider. And uh, we are going to start off our next segment here with a new topic, and that is money in marriage, five tips for newlyweds. Yeah, this comes from uh, from Fidelity, so really good article. And, um, you know, Steve, I, I, we see some couples that go through this process, but most of them don't. I mean, you know, when you say I do, it's not just about love. It's also about money. I mean, it's just a reality. That's right. Um, and so when you get married, you know, you tie a financial knot that you have to keep strong throughout your relationship, throughout your life together. And it's a matter really of setting expectations from the start and uh, making careful financial plans together, checking in with each other regularly to keep the finances on track. You know, as, as life changes, as you have kids and homes and so forth. So, you know, don't let disagreements about spending or different attitudes about money uh, derail the, the newlywed bliss. It doesn't have to be like that. Um, recognize that you're partners in this financial, you know, life and uh, take that partnership seriously. And so here are five ways to successfully unite your financial lives. And the first one here, very simple, but uh, just get organized. We see a lot of people that are not organized going into um, into marriages. And if you didn't talk seriously about how are you going to manage money together before you got married, now's the time to start. So even if you've been married for five years or ten years, you got to start talking about it. Open communication about what you, know, what you have, what you owe, what you spend, uh, how you feel about investing should be a part of that conversation. Uh, in other words, you got to avoid financial secrets, and we see that sometimes. You know, when we, we talk do. to folks and um, hiding accounts, hiding debts, that does not. It's going to come up eventually. Yep. And that that you start you start getting into trust issues, and it's not a money issue; it's a trust issue at that point. So, so here here's here's the list. Um, make a list of all your income, all your assets, and debts. Include credit cards and loans that you both bring into the marriage, and then decide how you will own the assets um, jointly or individually. You know, some c- couples do prefer to have their own account. Uh, we're, I'm a believer, and Steve, I think you are too, in having a joint account. Having, you know, as Dave Ramsey says, it's not a joint venture. It's uh, you have to put it together. You're not two separate entities. You come together as one. So, that, but that is a decision that's uh, personal that you have to make. Is you going to do everything jointly, or you're actually going to have individual accounts? Absolutely, yeah. I'm a big proponent of of making the union complete mm-hmm. with your finances as well. And so, and one thing you want to do is update your paperwork. I mean, if your marriage involves a change of name, then you want to update your driver's license, your passport, your Social Security card, credit cards, other things, so that your uh, your name will be uh, with your spouse as a beneficiary on certain investment accounts. That's really important. Matter of fact, there's a quick story. Um, I know a young couple that uh, forgot to update their their her driver's license, mm-hmm. and she went um, and passport, I think. And she went out of the country and came back and couldn't get back into the country because her Ooh. driver's license was yeah, the that's... name was was wrong. So. You know, it's really important that your passport and driver's license match, I guess, that you get everything updated is kind of the, the moral of the story there. But decide how you might consolidate things from debts to investments. See if it makes sense to simplify things by combining accounts. Like I said, we're, we're a big proponent of getting joint accounts so that you have right of survivorship, so it avoids probate, automatically becomes your spouse's if something happens to, to you. 
Many couples like the convenience of having their retirement savings, checking credit cards all in one financial institution in a one statement. I think that's a great idea. Plan your spending together. This is really important, particularly if you have different ideas about how much you should spend. You need to make agreements up front about your day-to-day spending as well as the big-ticket items you purchase. You need to create a budget together so that you have a budget with exactly mm-hmm. you know what you're going to be spending. Yeah, that's right. And another one here is um, look at your debt. You know, you, you got to meet in the middle. People, you know, each couple maybe have brought uh, different amounts in there. So you got to tackle your debt decisions together. Pay off the debts as soon as possible to free up more money uh, for future goals. And the last one here on the list for getting organized is budgeting. You got to understand budgeting i know it's not romantic from a you know from a a process standpoint but it is the key exercise to making you successful so make sure you get organized on the front end another one here is to set goals um because you know much of what couples do comes down to dollars and cents you got to have some common goals whether it's buying a home you know vacations retirement kids you know working together to figure out what you can realistically afford is uh, is key and uh, you got to make savings a habit in that process make automatic investments uh, it really takes the burden out of saving and it helps you um, to be on track so set those things up automatically to come out every single um, every single month and and finally you know you got to match your investments to your goals shorter term goals you know you may want to keep those investments liquid uh, and safe um, money markets you know CDs things like that longer term goals for retirement or college you need to you know extend out a little bit, you know, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, and so forth. And uh, you may need to get a checkup, uh, you know, occasionally associated with that. So make sure you have goals and you're sitting down and talking about this. The other one here is taxes, right? Yeah, taxes are also very important when it comes to money and marriage. And once you're married, you need to review your tax withholding and the ways you invest to potentially help minimize taxes and maximize your retirement savings. So, you need to update your marital status, first of all. Um, when you fill out a new W-4 form with your employer's withholding allowance certificate form and update that with your correct marital status, the number of W-2 withholding allowances, these will determine the amount that's withheld from your wages for federal and state income taxes. Um, it should help you in in essence mm-hmm. for taxes yep. because now you you get you know a file joint and that does help you on taxes a little bit and then saving for the future <clears throat> you know tax advantage accounts like workplace savings client plans uh, health savings accounts IRAs they can help you invest wisely for your long term goals earnings in tax deferred accounts like these can compound faster than those in accounts. Uh, that are taxable because all of your potential earnings remain in the account tax deferred, and that adds to your earnings power until you withdraw the money. So you want to make take maximum advantage mm-hmm. of IRAs, Roth IRAs, 401k plans, particularly when you're married. Yeah, absolutely. So that's that's a good one. Make sure you also protect what matters most. And when you get married, you got to review, update, in some cases, purchase different types of insurance. I mean, life insurance. Uh, is a is a key way to protect your loved ones health insurance disability i mean some of these may be provided by your employer um, but you got to look at the different options Um, you know we're we're believers in term insurance term insurance is a is an inexpensive way to protect your life Uh, there are other types of insurance out there like um, permanent insurance which is whole life universal 
you got to see which one's going to fit your budget and fit your needs. So a lot of different kinds of insurance options and choices that you have, but you got to make sure that, that you cover and you protect your family. Yeah, if you're employed, you also want to consider whether the group life insurance offered by your employer is enough to cover your needs and whether it makes sense to buy an individual policy as well. Another important type of insurance is disability insurance. It usually covers a portion of your salary if you become disabled before your entire retirement. Your employer may provide you with coverage, but you need to make sure it's enough to cover for your expenses. If not, consider buying this disability insurance on your own since an unexpected event could prevent you from working and earning a paycheck for quite some time. Yeah, that's a good one. And the last one here on the list is is to create a will. I mean, your will is is your most important legal document in your estate. It basically establishes your wishes with respect to the distribution of your estate. It provides direction on um, you know how you want your wishes carried out after your death. And even if you have a will, you need to update it when you get married. I mean, if you don't have a will, it's called dying intestate, um, and it can re- really wreak financial havoc on the surviving family members. So, you know, a will is a way to to get your assets dispersed out. The other thing that um, is super important in a will is, um, you know, who's going to be the custodian of your kids if you do have kids coming in there. And I know for Tammy and I, you know, talking through that and making sure we made the right decision for our family, um, it took some time to come to an agreement on that. So creating a will is is really really key so you know one of the let's kind of close this out one of the things i recommend for folks today steve going through um you know this process of getting married is you know get some counseling whether it's you know the money doctors um, dave ramsey has a fantastic course called financial peace university I guarantee you both of my kids, when they get married one day, I'm going to require them to go through that. Absolutely. Um, because it's just a basis. It talks about budgeting. It talks about insurance. It talks about retirement and things like that. And, and you need to have a good understanding of all of these different areas to be successful. Otherwise, it leads to, to issues sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, nothing's more important. Not many things are more important in marriage than than making sure you're on the same page financially and making sure you get on a sound off to a sound start in your mm-hmm. marriage financially. So you want to be on the same page. You want to discuss these issues. You want to have a budget. You want to plan for for all the ins and outs financially in your marriage. So make sure you, you pay attention to these things. And I think an FPU class, Financial Peace University class, is a great way to start that. Sure. So, okay, that leads up to a break here. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net or give us a call, 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner. I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey local provider. And uh, we are going to start a new subject here. But before we do that, we have the prescription of the week. Yeah, Steve, this is kind of a touchy subject. We, When we sit down and talk with clients and um, and counseling and, and folks in the community, um, you know, it's, it's sometimes hard to... <laughs> To address this, but it's very important, and that is to have 
boundaries with your grown children from a financial standpoint, probably other areas as well. But financially, we see I see folks that are struggling to pay off debts and fund retirement because they are paying for their family's expenses, cell phone bills. um, They pay for food, rent, um, insurance and so forth. And uh, I I met, you know, met a couple recently. And, you know, the problem is, is they don't know how much they're even paying because they don't have a budget. Usually that's what I see. It's just it could be out of control. Yeah. And so that's not helping your children. Now, obviously, if they're in college, you, you, you can help them out. If they're going through a tough time, I absolutely help them out. But a long-term plan is not continuing to pay all their expenses. You're not helping them. You You're hurting them. You cannot enable them no, that's to right. be financially irresponsible because you won't be around forever, and yep. you just can't afford it. I mean, you have to take care of yourself, your own retirement. They have to learn responsibility, and they have to be able to teach their kids responsibility, and they can't do that if they if they haven't learned it themselves. So you have to be careful here. I mean, everybody wants to help their kids and get them out of a tough situation but you know tough situations tend to reoccur i would also put some strings on helping out your children or friends or whoever if if i do help you with this bill or help you with this situation you are required to do x and and again financial education the fpu class is a great way to to get people at least knowledgeable Um, it's better than just giving them money because giving them money you're not teaching them anything and, and loaning money is useless as well because you're usually not going to get repaid the money. So loaning money to your family is a bad idea. Yep. You'll taint a relationship. You become the lo- the, the lender, yeah. and that's a terrible situation to be in with a family member. So if you're going to help them, I'd say give it to them. But, you know, it needs to be very limited one time, not without strings. Mm-hmm. And it, it needs to have some conditions with it. Yeah. And that means some change. Yeah, that's right. And uh, but don't just enable your kids. Don't just get on the let them get on the dole, and you just start paying bills for them. Like their cable bill. I see parents that are paying cable bills, and they're paying cell phone bills, and they're just paying all kinds of bills for mm-hmm. their kids. You know, their car payment. Um, they need to learn responsibility. So those ongoing payments absolutely needs to be their responsibility, or they absolutely need to be at a standard living that they can afford to live yeah, regardless right. of how little that is. Yep. So they can't they can't be living a lifestyle they can't afford. So that's a very very good prescription of the week. But you're right, it's a very touchy subject too. <laughs> it is. All right, that leads us up to our last topic here and that is kind of a look back at history. How did September 11th, 9/11 how did that affect the U.S. stock market, and how did the market recover from that? It's interesting and important, I think, to remember history. Yes, it is. Because it does mean something about the future. Yeah, and obviously, Steve, we, we study history. We understand history very well, and it doesn't repeat perfectly. But you can start taking um, some some macro themes and thoughts when this happens again in the future, and, and hopefully this never happens again on U.S. soil. But and there's always something that makes the market go down. So, you know, back in that time, to prevent a stock market meltdown, the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ did not open for trading the next day um, on Tuesday morning. Um, when American Airline Flight 11 crashed into the North Tower of, of the World Trade Center at 8.46, actually it was on that Tuesday morning, and then you also had American Airline Flight 175 hit the South Tower at 9.03, it was obvious that America 
was under attack. And so the assumption that a coordinated terrorist assault by Islamic radicals had targeted some of the country's most iconic structures and institutions, it was confirmed sometime later that the uh, that morning when a plane hit the Pentagon and a fourth hijacked plane bound for Washington, D.C., was brought down by the passengers in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. So four... You know, four things were going on simultaneously, so they did not open the markets that morning. Yeah, and I'm sure you're like me. You can remember exactly oh, yes. what you were doing. Absolutely. I was on vacation. I was jogging on the beach that morning wow. when I was listening to the radio and heard that a plane had hit the first tower. And then shortly thereafter, they they came on again and said a plane had hit the second tower, yeah. and it was obviously a coordinated attack. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just remember the thinking, oh, my goodness, you know, it's going to send us into recession. And, yeah. You know, we're under attack. By, interesting what the markets you know, did, though. It is interesting what the market is. And that's what we're here to talk about. Yeah, the markets anticipating the chaos, the panic selling, disastrous loss in value and wake of those attacks. The New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ, they remain closed. And they closed the stock exchange until September 17th for almost a week the longest shutdown since 1933. And moreover, many of the trading brokerage and other financial firms had offices in the World Trade Center, mm-hmm. and they were unable to function in wake of the of the tragic loss of life and, and the collapse of both towers. So they were shut down as well. Yeah, that's right. And on the first day that the uh, the trading be- uh, started after 9-11, um, that was on 9-17. So uh, the market fell 684 points, or 7% decline it's it set a record for the biggest loss in exchange history for one trading day and at the close of trading that friday ending a week that saw the biggest losses in the history of the new york stock exchange the dow jones was also down about 1400 points and it represented a loss of 14 percent s&p lost about 12 percent so about 1.4 trillion dollars was lost in those five trading days Time to, time to panic, right? Wow. Yeah, that's right. I mean, time everybody panic. was panicking. Yeah, they were panicking. They, they were. I mean, major major uh, stock sell-offs hit the airline industry and the insurance industry really hard when trading resumed. Uh, American Airlines and United Airlines, they were down uh, huge. They were down like, like 39% and 42% respectively. So we had some huge declines mm-hmm. right there in the market of uh, the second it started back opening trading. And one of the reasons why it declines is when there's when there's not good um, vision and forecasting for the future, the markets are going to drop. And they had no idea what was going to happen. That's I mean, right. Were we going to have more terrorist attacks? What was going to happen to some of these industries? Travel, tourism, hospitality, uh, financial services. I mean, a wave of temporary fear and uncertainty really swept through the nation. And among the financial service giants, uh, the steepest drops were Merrill Lynch, lost about 12%. Morgan Stanley lost 13%. Uh, insurance firms reportedly eventually paid out about $40 billion in 9-11 related claims. And uh, among the big, biggest loser was um, Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, most insurance firms, you know, subsequently dropped uh, tariffs of coverage after that. So, you know, a lot of uh, you know uncertainty about what happened or what was going to happen going forward. And so 14% in one week. Huge. Yeah, and and like most situations like this, there there were some sectors, however, that actually prospered as a result of the attacks. I mean, certain technology companies, as well as defense, weaponry, weaponry contractors, saw the price of their shares increase substantially, anticipating a boost from government business as the country prepared for a long war uh, against terror. 
Um, stock prices also spiked upward for communications and pharmaceutical firm firms. Um, so we've had some companies that that actually benefited from this. Yeah, and you know some of the other exchanges saw a lot of volume increasing as well. But Steve, why don't you kind of wrap up here with the bottom line? I mean, what what actually happened coming out of this you know tragedy? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the U.S. economy you know is legendary for its strength and resilience, and the national character is persistently optimistic. No more than the one month had elapsed from the Dow Jones and the NASDAQ and the S&P all regained their 9-11 value. So only a month, only a short little one-month period, the market fully recovered from 9-11 back to the values uh, pre the attack. So a month. A month. So if you would have invested when the market went down in that instance, it would have paid off handsomely. And, you know, the interesting thing is the market was in a correction right then, immediately, right after the 9-11 tax, and it took about a month to recover. Um, For the average uh, correction, it takes about 105, 107 days, depending on which study Mm -hmm. you look at. Mm -hmm to recover fully from the bottom. And yeah, so, that's right. It's not it, very long. Typically recovers quickly and you know the the current economic problems in the in the uh, world really, you know, obviously not related to the 9/11 attacks, um, but there's always going to be issues in the economy. There there's is. always going to be issues in on the world stage and what the markets have done repeatedly is they have always come back up. Now we can't predict the future. We can't tell you when but they have come back up every single time. There's never been a time in history that it has not come back up as long as you're diversified. Yeah, and what I like to say is a lot of times when we're talking about these, I say the reasons are different every time, but the reaction in the market is usually very, very similar, Mm -hmm. and that is markets do recover over time. They always have, and I believe they always will. So that's an interesting, interesting look back at history, though. Very, very important, I think, to remember history. Like we did in uh, 9-11 here. Okay, well, this brings us to a close for this week's edition of Money MD. Tune in next Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m. to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. Do check us on our website, moneymd.net. Email us your questions. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at info at moneymd.net or give us a call. Richard Young Associates, 706-739-0725. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. Have a good one. Ladies and gentlemen. Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed local provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor, securities sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC. Jesus.